What is up, Asymmetry? How you all doing? Happy New Year. Maybe almost two weeks late, but the Mirai team is just now back in the house and in full effect. And I have a little bit of a different pace podcast tonight. I've never sat down and podcasted by myself, but I did have some things that I wanted to talk about specifically and independently uh, entering 2021. And so without further ado, uh, let's begin. So first and foremost, I think 2021 is a major, major year uh, for Mirai and for me personally, because of the fact that it is the second decade of Mirai as a company, as a facility, as a mentality, as a community. Um, actually, March 15th, uh, well, March 12th will be the the four-year, let's see, four-year anniversary of Mirai Live. April 15th will be the 10-year anniversary of Bonsai Mirai as a facility. I closed on this property April 15th of 2010. And the moment I closed on the property, the night that I closed on the property, I spent the night on the subfloor. I tore out the carpet and the walls the first day. We also broke ground on the workshop and the garden the first day. A lot of people here doing a lot of different things, and I had no idea what I was doing. But that first night that I was sleeping on the subfloor of the little cabin that existed as the only solid structure on the property, it was raining. It was pouring, in fact, and water came rushing in through a hole in the chimney, filled the first floor with water. It soaked through the floor and destroyed all of the sheetrock in the second floor, the basement of my house. And I, I remember thinking, uh, what have I gotten myself into? Like literally, what have I gotten myself into? And honestly, 10 years later, closing in on that 10-year mark, 10 years later, uh, I still have those moments at Mirai where I think, what have I gotten myself into? But the concept of Mirai as a facility and the purpose of Mirai for the first 10 years of our existence was something that occurred to me at a really challenging time during my apprenticeship back in Japan because I had gone to Japan to study bonsai and my dream up to the point of going to Japan was to, to apprentice with Mr. Kimura. And suddenly I am his apprentice and I'm his apprentice for a year and I'm his apprentice for two years and I'm an apprentice for three years. And I start to recognize what it means to be an apprentice, what it means to be in servitude to your master, what it means to try and take that experience and and abide by the principles and practices of engaging with the Japanese culture on that level of a traditional fashion. And, and what it meant for me ultimately was swallowing a lot of pride as an American, uh, having a lot or learning a lot more humility over the course of that time, but it also meant taking all of my ideas and just sort of writing them down, documenting them, or having them continue to replay in the back of my head all the while trying to abide by what Mr. Kimura was expecting of me. And, and that combination didn't really work for me. So in the fourth year of my apprenticeship, I had some pretty major, pretty major faux pas. Uh, Might have been third year blending into fourth year. Pretty major faux pas, some, some really big mistakes, uh, some really big problematic issues in terms of 
I tore a branch off of uh, a spruce tree owned by a client that was destined for the Kokfu exhibition. Uh, I allowed a bird to eat all the berries off of a uh, Japanese holly that was also supposed to be a part of a Chuhin composition in the Kokfu exhibition. And and there was a moment there, I, I didn't think I was going to, oh, I thought I was going to get sent home, but I was too deep into the process and I understood that you don't get sent home. You, you have something far worse happen to you, and that is you stop existing at all as an apprentice. And Mr. Kimura didn't acknowledge me for, gosh, three or four months. I couldn't. I didn't have a piece of work in the workshop. There wasn't really an acknowledgement of my existence outside of the workshop. I was like a ghost in the facility. And I, I continued to try and make myself obviously uh, valuable just by performing all of the menial tasks that have to happen around his facility. And one of those tasks was washing rags at the, at the sink outside of his workshop. And there was a piece of electrical conduit that ran right in front of that stone sink. You know, and the sink's like down around my knees. So you're always bent over or you're crouched down washing these rags. And for that entire time, because I had been the youngest apprentice for a fairly prolonged period of time, I was sitting there and I was, um, looking at that electrical conduit and it said Mirai on the electrical conduit. And I had never really thought, what does Mirai mean? What is the definition of Mirai? Well, I'd thought it, but I'd never actually taken the initiative to look it up. And I recognized at that point in time, like I've looked at this conduit for three years now. Uh, I, I, I've wondered this, what the definition of this word is for three years. There is a countless Japanese words I had wondered that the meaning of and how to use it contextually and um, among other things or countless things I knew I needed to be doing as an apprentice that I wasn't necessarily doing successfully. And I went home that night and I looked up the definition of Mirai and it's, it's future, right? Shorai is future. Mirai is future, but future from the context of the unobtainable future, the future that's always in front of you and you're never going to actualize. And I just thought, you know, it's interesting when you have those moments and you recognize uh, a lack of whatever accountability or a lack of proactivity or a lack of willingness to take advantage of the opportunity. Cause I had dreamed of becoming an apprentice for Mr. Kimura since I was 12 years old. And, and suddenly here I am in my, my mid twenties and I am his apprentice and I really wasn't taking advantage of the situation. I mean, I was working hard. I was trying to study bones. I don't get me wrong. I wasn't lazy. I wasn't I wasn't some I wasn't some entitled person in that position but there was more that was demanded of me to truly be great at what I dreamed of being great at and it was through that failure and that moment of recognition that I wasn't doing everything I could be doing um, that I also started thinking about what do I what am I here for what am I apprenticing myself to Mr. Kimura for what am I spending my time in Japan for, number one, if I'm not going to fully dedicate, fully commit, right? I was very committed, but I wasn't fully committed. Giving yourself to something is different than wanting and liking and trying to pursue something, right? And I had that American mentality where like, I'm trying, I'm working really hard. But in the back of my mind, you have that, that slight little voice that's saying, but you could go a little harder, but you could try a little harder, but you should push a little harder. And, and that was the voice that I had continued to sort of be reactive to. Anyways, defining Mirai that night, I recognized, you know, if I'm going to walk away from this experience without regrets, 
which I think we're all motivated to walk away without regrets. Uh, I need to take the remainder of my time in Japan and I need to, I need to put my foot on the gas. I need to leave nothing to be desired, decided, or regretted uh, when I look back on this experience later in life. And that, and that was like a wholesale change of mentality that although I'm sure it was a process over the course of my time in Japan, I remember that moment as being the pivotal turning point. And, and the reason that that matters is because then I started saying, well, why did I come all this way? You know, because apprenticing wasn't the romantic, like wax on, wax off. Mr. Me and Mr. Miyagi have this beautiful relationship where he's like a father figure. Mr. Kimura wasn't that kind of uh, personality. He was he was very demanding and very strict, and there was a there was an adherence to the level of craft and artistry that he expected out of his apprenticeships that you had to really earn. And so I started thinking, you know. Ultimately, I went to Japan and apprenticed in Japan, not because I love Japanese bonsai, although I think Japanese bonsai is awesome, uh, not because I had a fascination with the culture or the food or the language, but because I wanted to know what Mr. Kimura had to teach me. And I wanted to know what Mr. Kimura had to teach me because I knew if I knew that, I could come back to the United States and I would always have that knowledge to be able to communicate and teach to other people. And in that, the level of bonsai in the United States would rise if people shared that knowledge freely because that knowledge when I was in college was hard to come by. There weren't a lot of people giving it out or at least even making it accessible. And so and so that that was really the origin of it. And I thought, well, you know, what's lacking in the Western world, what's lacking in the bonsai world outside of Japan. And it was really the presence of the same caliber and commitment of garden that you saw in Japan, where professionals showed up every day to the garden. They were working on the trees to the best of their ability. They had the time to put into several years or even several decades of evolution on a singular tree. And you were, the world was referencing these pieces that had been professionally handled in a dedicated fashion. But the Western bonsai world was comprised of traveling professionals, the demonstration model, the workshop model. There weren't really, there were retail gardens, but there weren't really gardens that were incubators for the professional evolution of an individual or of an art form as you saw it in Japan. And Japan was creating that model. And so it's like, okay, immediately, when why am I here? I'm here to evolve my understanding so that I can share it. How do I go about evolving that and sharing it? Really allowing myself the ability to learn and grow and understand from the process of bonsai and from the tree as the primary component of the practice meant having a garden. And so immediately I'm saying, I have this garden. I already had been collecting my own Yamadori since I was 12 with my dad through college. I helped afford college collecting Yamadori. Uh, I knew what material existed in North America. I knew what material existed in Europe. And it, and it was very easy to see that that was going to need to be something that was evolved and developed because the knowledge of the horticulture and the technique and the aesthetic exploration that those pieces of material that are truly wild in the native North American landscape and the, and the European landscape, like the, these things needed an approach that didn't take the merits and the wildness and and tame them into the box of another culture and another bonsai approach. It, it really demanded that there be a facility that was freely experimenting with what that meant. Now, I, I had no clue, but I'm thinking, here, I'm going to build a garden. This garden is going to be an incubator for thought. 
there are other additions beyond just the material and the trees that need to be a part of that. And that was the ceramicists, right? We needed the ceramic medium to catch up. Japan had this lineage of tremendous ceramicists and that forms 50% of the composition. And I think in the United States, anybody doing any sector of bonsai professionally, uh, it was very hard for somebody to be doing bonsai professionally. Let's just say that. I remember when I went to Japan, you could say you could count on one hand the number of people that are making a living doing bonsai. At that time, Bill Valvanis, Boone, may, maybe two or three other people um, without other sources of income. And if I'm forgetting anybody, I apologize. But as a collegiate individual getting ready to go to Japan, that was my understanding of the of the culture in North America. Uh, and I think you could you could probably count on one hand the number of ceramicists. I mean, I think it was I think it was Sarah Rayner essentially that was making a living making bonsai ceramics. And so there was this necessity stand makers. And then the notion of that entire thing of you have this facility and you're going to educate individuals and that's going to give them the confidence and the skill set to be able to handle material of a higher quality and you have the ceramic body that hopefully by supporting ceramicists more, promoting their work, utilizing it, showing them what's possible, they have a be better capacity to make a higher grade of work and the stand makers to be able to display this, you needed an exhibition to really create a demand. And that was the Artisan's Cup. That was the, the birth place of the artisan's cup was in this thought process during my third to fourth year of japan as i'm reconciling why have i not taken the initiative to fully commit why have i allowed there to be a whisper in my mind uh, that is understanding that i have a little bit more to give and once i had that sense of purpose and once i made that commitment to to just emptying the gas tank that changed everything in the last two and a half years of my apprenticeship were a full-blown, outright, full-throttle dedication, uh, which was, I didn't have to say anything to Mr. Kimura. By coming to that conclusion on my own, uh, my behavior alone spoke volumes. And within two weeks of making that shift, I was back in the workshop uh, doing work again. You know, and it's, it's amazing the kind of, when you're together, every single day as an apprentice, because we got a day off every couple months, but we worked from, you know, Mr. Kimura's anywhere between seven and nine in the morning, depending on what rank of apprentice you were, till anywhere between 10 midnight, sometimes one o'clock in the morning. So you're together a lot. He, he recognized something had shifted and, and that carried me through the tail end of my apprenticeship. Now I'm going to say the hardest thing about, about, pursuing bonsai professionally at that point in time was not starting my apprenticeship. It was finishing my apprenticeship because the move back to the United States, although I was anticipating it, I had so much energy and idea uh, and inspiration pent up in the back of my mind and on, you know, yogurt, cardboard yogurt cutouts and, and notepads and napkins and toilet paper. I mean, I, I had a lot of ideas but I came back to the United States and I was a foreigner. I was like lost in the sea, the tween stages of, and I say tween in terms of in-between stages of cultures of, of Japan, which I had acclimated to, which United States, I had stopped six years ago and I came back six years later and, and it was dramatically different. Um, and that was really challenging because it was very hard to find my footing. 
And you'll understand why all of this matters here in a minute. <clears throat> so once I had once I had closed the deal, I'd found Mirai uh, while I was still apprenticing on a trip back home, one of the few, to visit Randy Knight in Oregon. I'd seen a piece of property up the road from him. It was right in every way, except for it was a dilapidated old, probably legitimately teardown worthy cabin um, that I decided to not tear down. But but it took me until I came back to be able to obviously be here to close the deal, but also to recognize what's right and to wrap my mind around the entire process of, of how do I go about building this facility and garden that gave purpose to the last two and a half years of my apprenticeship. Anyways, fast forward to April 15th, and I'm sleeping on the subfloor that night, and rain comes pouring in, and I'm saying, man, what the heck am I doing? The only guiding light that I had through the entire build-out of Mirai was this futuristic notion, this unobtainable concept of my purpose and my intention. And so from the next morning when I woke up and I recognized I got to fix the chimney number one, I got to fix the sheetrock number two, I'm going to continue moving forward on this thing because there's nowhere to go but up. Clearly I was at a very low point. you know, that that became sort of the first circumstance of my new life as uh, a, a trained apprentice, but definitively not a bonsai professional. Uh, I would say an aspiring bonsai professional with enough to be dangerous, but not enough to be proficient. That was the first stage of sort of saying, moving into uncharted waters. And, you know, over the course of the next five years, built Mirai established an educational approach, experienced things along the way that really changed the way that I thought about bonsai. And probably the most paramount piece of that was the trip across the country with Peter Warren and Zach Scheiman transporting trees to the national show in Rochester, New York in 2012. I'd driven a lot of different places, Nashville, Tennessee. I'd driven from Chicago back to Portland when I flew home from Japan for the final time, I, I, I'd seen a lot of North America, but that something about the trip from west to east and east to west again, and recognizing having been back in the United States for two years, having had a little bit of an identity crisis in the transition of cultures, and, and, and then seeing this broad continent with different thought processes along the way, approaches to you know eating, lifestyle, clothing, behavior, etc., really started the process of recognizing this is a very special landmass North America is. It's very special and the culture that acts on it is, is very, very interesting or, or, or say grows or rises out of that landmass is interesting. And there are trees that mark this process. And as I was sort of listening to the judges judge the national show in Rochester in 2012 and listening to Mr. Mitsuya sort of criticize a flat top bald cypress that I thought was one of the most spectacular trees in the show and say that's not what a formal upright should look like. I recognize, wow, okay, this is a this is a uh, a failure to understand the native landscape, the form of trees, the representation and a failure for the expectations of a cultural approach to bonsai in the Japanese fashion to cross the ocean and recognize that there are more opportunities and there are ways outside of just the Japanese approach. And that catapulted me. That catapulted me into 
separating myself from Mr. Kimura and thinking in the back of my mind every time I worked a native North American tree, what would Mr. Kimura do? And it freed me from that. It freed me from it because I recognized it doesn't matter now what Mr. Kimura would do. It doesn't matter what somebody else would say. The only thing that matters is that it's honest and it's authentic that it is true to form. True to form to what? True to form to representing this landmass that I suddenly find myself not just proud to be a part of, I've always been proud to be a part of it, but fascinated by and dedicated to understanding it better. Understanding it better through the creation of these trees that give rise to the the memories or the nostalgia of places growing up or carry forward the elemental and environmental impact of the influences in these different portions of this very large landmass. And that was really the, the, the birth of Mirai's bonsai approach and ethos is, is the bald cypress being criticized and this drive. And on the way back, I'm thinking, you know, the coastal redwood is one of the most iconic trees. Its size, its girth gives rise to a notion of expansive opportunity, freedom, creativity outside of the box, a, a, a plentiful bounty, right? The Western United States, the gold rush and the timber rush and, and the move west as a thought process of liberation and freedom. And I recognize there's a lot of negativity tied up in that, but I'm just going to go ahead and stick with the romantic thought process here, acknowledging that there are realities to that as well. But, you know, that, that really, to me, kind of started to define what it meant to quote unquote be an American or, or, or what it meant, what the spirit of the West, and I would say the United States in general as a land of opportunity was, right? And, and how do you, how do you capture that? And I think how you capture that is what gave rise to the massive redwood forest and the, f- the funny thing about this is the redwood forest started in 2012 when i got back from when i got back from the national show but but the redwood forest that started in 2012 was the first forest i'd ever created as a bonsai professional and it's a full-size forest i mean it's on a massive reclaimed root base of redwood uh, i think i have you know 11 trees from Zach Scheiman on that, just massive, massive redwoods. But I started following that up with the Doug Fir Forest, a Ponderosa Forest, a Pygmy Cypress Forest, a Bald Cypress Forest. I mean, it was like this, it was like this trickle-down effect of like, oh, that's a landscape, that's a landscape, that's a landscape, that's a landscape, that's iconic, that's representative, that's, that's something I want to convey. And it, and it, it started that, that, that quest to try and communicate and tap into people's nostalgia and the birthplace of identity as it is embodied in the tree was was just so powerful and such a motivating force at that time. And to understand how do you make multiple apices and how do you f- truly form a redwood in, in the authentic version of it and, 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 and what does a ponderosa pine actually look like on a granite slab in the Rockies? You know, I'd grown up knowing that. I'd gone to Japan uh, to some degree, stuffing those concepts aside and really working towards the traditional model and inside of that cultural confine and then being free of it again, trying to rediscover that freedom was where that process really crystallized itself in 2012. And so with that, you had a change of aesthetic consideration in terms of the education at Mirai, or at least offering this notion and an exploration of horticulture to facilitate these new forms and ideas, which changed the technique and changed the approach. 
And once we started changing the technique and the approach, it started to give rise to a new body of education that I do think was specific to the Western world. But as with any good idea, it's not just immediately a good idea. It's a good idea. You have to massage it. You've got to manipulate it. You've got to fail. You've got to hit subpar standards before you start to really tap into what, what is authentic, what is, what is nuanced and true, what is representative, where is the, the middle ground, the balance, the effective, the ineffective, the, the boundary. How do, you, how do you touch all of the walls and the ceiling of that idea? And that's a lot of ideas to work out. That's a lot of ideas to work out, horticulturally as well as design-wise, as well as technique-wise. This marriage of worlds and bonsai is complex. And that, that, took some, that took some pushing. We almost killed the entire garden at Mariah in 2014. 2015, we have the Artisan's Cup, this, 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 this watershed moment of, of freedom in the exhibition space and the use of architecture to create context. And now all of a sudden... You know, beyond the exploration of, of form and shape and technique and horticulture, now we have this notion of the way that we communicate with this medium is not by the form of the tree alone, but by the context in which the form of the tree is presented. And then, you know, this brings up conflict of using the ceramic body, which is what inherently, you know, occupies the bone and bonsai and, and really does have a cultural connection to it that might not necessarily be as authentic. But, you know, and then you go through this narrative arc of, do we still call it bonsai? Is there an American bonsai form? Is it, is it, is it uh, appropriating to take, take the word bonsai and, and call it American bonsai? And, 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 you know, you have the pinging to bonsai discussion and the word changes and the cultural, the cultural influences change the aesthetic, uh, product, it changes the intention of the creation, it changes the the motivation, and it changes the behavior, is just so much. It was so much to try and consider. And it was so much in such a short period of time. Within five years, you know, I had completed apprenticeship over six years. That took me a long time to wrap my mind around. In five years, that model had been deconstructed, repurposed, explored, broken, destroyed, rebuilt. And what it had really warranted was a, a, a whole new set of ideas. And after the Artisan's Cup in 2015, I honestly felt lost. I felt completely lost. Because I had thought about my life, it was like the day I graduated college, I just thought, I never have to go back to school again. It was the happiest day of my life. I mean, school's valuable, but school wasn't where I thrived. I wanted to be doing what I love to do. I went to Japan, and I'm sitting here, and I'm saying, I'm, I'm, I'm living this dream. You know, I need to take advantage of it, and I develop my next sense of purpose. Well, after executing the Artisan's Cup, I hadn't prepared that next journey. I hadn't prepared for the next five years. I didn't know what to do after that exhibition, honestly, because I was like, wow, I had all this clarity. I had all these good ideas and here's this exhibition and here's things are happening. Context becomes this malleable subject matter. And, and that led to personal exhibitions. In 2016, the Japanese gardens and the, the celebration of the construction of King Okuma's addition to the Japanese gardens. And in the Portland Japanese garden, really wanted me to push the boundaries. They didn't know how much I would take liberty, the liberty uh, of that freedom. Um, and it was a little bit jarring for them, I think, but it ultimately ended up being a very successful exhibition to recognize identity 
uh, in that space that was outside of Japan and me pursuing an art form that was also outside of Japan. Uh, and the Wyden-Kennedy exhibition, Spectrum, really had a powerful impact in terms of architecture and the impact of that context. But, you know, come 2017, 2018, 2019, with the creation of Mirai Live and the ability to be unlimited in educational opportunities and not be confined by physical presence, that was an entirely new process, period. I mean, it's an entirely new thought process. And there were ways of talking about bonsai that we teased out in Asymmetry, the podcast, and uh, the educational structure at Bonsai Mirai continued to grow stronger, students more proficient, national shows occurred. But that was really a time where I didn't, I didn't necessarily know what my purpose in bonsai was. I had, I, I really had no clue uh, what my purpose in bonsai was. It was just a time of massaging and trying to come to an understanding and some degree of either peace or discontent with what I was doing. And there were definitely years, 2017, 2018, 2019, there were definitely years in there where I could look back on the work and see that my heart and soul was not necessarily behind the work that I was doing on the trees myself. I feel like the education was there. I feel like the commitment to my students and the garden was there for sure. For sure, without a doubt, I was focused on the knowledge that we were communicating and conveying via Mariah Live and students being on site. But my personal expression through the medium of bonsai was very lost and was lacking the kind of clarity and substance and motivation that that I I needed. But there was like a there was an idea, there was like a, a seed of thought that started happening in there because it's like, you know when you see something in the natural environment and you go home, you can only take one or two things from that that you can remember with an amount of clarity that you could reproduce. It's like, it's like I don't know if you're ever a kid or, or, or maybe not a kid, if you've ever aspired to draw something on a piece of paper and you see it in your mind, but you cannot draw it on the piece of paper to save your life. It just doesn't come out the correct way. I recognize, wow, that's, that's happening with bonsai and the abstraction of that through the filtration process of the individual, right? My mind, your mind, your experiences are going to cloud that impression, your experiences of seeing that tree in that moment, but also your experiences over the course of your life become a little bit of a, you could call it two ways. You could call it a pollution or you could call it a, a seasoning or an enhancement to that notion. And some ideas about trees are going to be polluted by your experiences, and some ideas about trees are going to be enhanced or spiced up or improved. And, and, and that's where the individual is reflected in the work of bonsai. If you're deviating from copying the traditional pattern, then it becomes a representation and an expression of the self. And I love that idea. I love the idea of seeing somebody's personality in their work and seeing that expression be true and honest. But I recognized that my expression was not authentic in the work that I was doing. And so that seed of trying to see what happens when you put yourself in a more literal position in the creation of bonsai. In fact, what happens if you embed yourself in the environment and try to create bonsai? 
And what happens if you embed yourself in the environment while you're experiencing the same environmental influences that create the forms of the trees that are inspiring the bonsai action? What then? What happens with that discomfort? What happens with that, say, less than ideal circumstance? What happens to your your drawing, if you will, when you are sitting amongst in front of the figure as opposed to thinking about the figure you're not thinking about the human face you're looking at the human face in fact you can touch the human face you could trace the human face if you wanted to what happens when you take the medium of bonsai the tiny tree and you go to its root point of origin and you experience everything that that tree is experiencing in real time and you try to create and that became the seed that started to grow And it started to grow and gain momentum at the end of 2018 and had a lot of force behind it in 2019, but the time wasn't right yet. And then in 2020, right, amidst the pandemic and things definitely changing their context to a significant degree from the life that we had all become accustomed to living and watching and reflecting on culture and human behavior and uh, a lot of the things that we've known are wrong but haven't been addressed, that that became the moment where whatever the space or just like that moment in Japan between my third and fourth year where I recognized I, I have another gear. This was that moment where the discontent or the question became strong enough that I started asking it. And, and, and that started to breed purpose for me again in the bonsai approach. You know, 2020 was a very uncomfortable year for all of us, undoubtedly a very uncomfortable year. But for the process of Mirai being in the 10th year of our first decade, the final gasp of a body of work and and attempting to plant this new seed at the moment where it felt like the climate was right to begin this next level of exploration, it wasn't intentional that it was in the 10th year that this started, but it was, I think, fortuitous that it was in the 10th year that it started. Trying to embed myself in the landscape, and I I had a realization. We, we went to the Olympic Peninsula, and I did a body of work on subalpine fir in the alpine region, and that was very powerful. That's when I recognized there was a lot of opportunity and a lot to learn from this. And then we went to Crater Lake, and looking at the whitebark pines and understanding their, understanding the whitebark pine blister rust and, 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 and the plight that is going to potentially eradicate the five-needle pine in the northern hemisphere. And recognizing bonsai is this time capsule, right? It's like this documentation of not just uh, an independent individual's body of work. Because I think ultimately... If we're thinking about bonsai correctly, we're not the owner of a bonsai. We're just the immediate caretaker of a tree that existed before us. And if we do our job correctly, should exist after us. And so thinking about the ability to preserve or take these nuances of these trees that in the changing landscape of climate change and the uh, adjusting landscape of the, the forest structure and uh, another potential mass die-off of species, both fla- f- uh, fauna and flora, bonsai has, has reoriented itself, not only as an embodiment of culture, not only as a representation of nature, but potentially as a preservational component 
that allows us to document things that we cannot otherwise stop the progression of. And so the third piece of work was in the bristle cones in the white mountains east of the Sierra Nevadas. And that was the one, that was the one where it all kind of came together for, for me anyways. And it came together from the perspective of, you know, where is our place in the, where is our place in the landscape and where does this art form of representing nature and miniature sort of find its purpose or find the greatest amount of power and impact. And the Bristlecone project was something that I had steered away from initially because how do you go embed yourself in a 3,000 to 5,000-year-old forest of the oldest living organism on Earth in terms of a singular organism standing alone, not a root system giving rise to suckers, not a carbon-dated lichen, but this living, breathing being standing on its own, 5,000-plus years old. How, how, do you, how do you put yourself in that position with any sort of humility and feel like what you're doing is significant? That, that was the challenge. Uh, and I still don't think that what I was doing was significant, but what I was deriving from that was that, and, and, and what this journey, sort of the planting of this seed and embedding in the landscape and experiencing the real-time influences, what it did for me that at that moment in time was force me to quantify what, why I cared so much about trees. Why did I dedicate myself to bonsai so long ago? Because I didn't know when I was 12 why. And I didn't know when I was 25 why. And I didn't know when I was 35 why. But as I was sitting in the bristle cones doing this piece of work, I recognized that the tree is communicating the influences of the landscape. And we are looking at the trees and we are understanding through the trees what elemental and environmental conditions are, 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 are existing, whether it's a lack of moisture, whether it's a direction of wind, whether it's a constraint of the soil mass or the rock or the sun. Everything about what a tree is doing is communicating. It is a bridge that is connecting the landmass that we are not going to be there frequently enough, long enough, over a prolonged enough period of time to understand. And when you see truly ancient, when you see a thousand years, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 years, you are able to interpret the prolonged influence of that landmass, the time-tested, authentic, honest intention and capabilities of that landmass on a living organism. And that allows us to now see the tree as a communication device and as a time capsule for everything that has happened beyond chopping a tree in half or taking a dead tree and looking at the tree rings and saying it didn't grow well for these 10 years, that must have been drought, there's a fire here, that's awesome. You're talking more about the notion of the elements that we experience as living organisms on earth and we're understanding them on a level of influence over the course of time. And I just don't know any other way or any other thing that can convey that kind of information to the human being and connect us to the earth. And so I started recognizing in that moment amongst those projects that the tree is the great connection. The tree is the great communicator. The tree is, is maybe the most bold bridge to be formed between the landscape and human beings existing on it. And we talk about sustainability 
and we talk about the necessity to change our ways and preserve this earth, but it's too grand of an idea because we're not connected. We're not drawing our nutrition from our roots through our trunk to our branches. We're not conducting water from the root tips to the, to the stomata of our, our needle and leaf mass to, to, to drive. We're not capturing the energy of the sun and breaking down elements into reformed complex sugars and starches and uh, utilizing amino acids in their complexity to be able to enhance our metabolic activities. This is something that only plants do, and this is something that trees have learned how to do and adapt to the constantly changing environment to continue to be able to act as a communication, act as a, a speaker that allows us to understand the landscape. And, and that moment just changed everything, changed everything. Because now all of a sudden, instead of, instead of thinking that the whole notion of bonsai was to somehow try to represent nature in miniature, I started to realize the whole notion of bonsai was to understand. It was to understand, right? And anybody who does bonsai, you recognize the value's not in the final product, the pretty picture. The value's in the process. That's where you gain all of the, all of the mojo, all of the magic, that's where you experience the benefit of bonsai is in the action of collaborating with the tree. And we learn in that fashion. And to, to, to understand is to create a communication device that allows other people to connect, other people to reorient. The public, the grander sort of notion of conservation and valuing of the native natural environment and natural resources and this is really where in recent sort of posts and moments in Mirai's expression of our ethos on social media or in a public-facing way, Bonsai can save the world. That's a, that's a funny thing to say, right? I think Saburo Kato with the creation of the World Bonsai Friendship Federation and his relationship with John Naka felt like Bonsai could bring peace to the world. That's a, that is a... That is an, an enlightened statement, to say the least. It is true in every way. But I think when we look at what we're faced with on a global scale right now, could bonsai save the world? You know, it's, it, I don't think every person should have a bonsai. Well, I do think every person should have a bonsai, but I don't know that that is ever going to be necessary, realistic, and that's not a goal that I would ever pursue. But I do think if every person did have a bonsai, our appreciation and awareness of the native environment and the, 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 the spectacular bridge to the landscape that would form would change our behavior definitively. So the problem now then, and the challenge and, and the perpetuation of the question in Mariah's second decade, the motivation is not how do we save the world with bonsai, although I hope that's an offshoot or a tangent of the body of work that we create. And it's not, you know, how do we elevate the level of bonsai? Because I, 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 think, there is a, I think there is a template for that now in terms of the high tide raises all ships and breaking new boundaries and sharing that provides the opportunity for other people to piggyback off that idea and continue to elevate the level or starting at a level where we're at now is the baseline for the next generation to only grow from that level and improve. And so th those mechanisms for bonsai being practiced at a higher level or even bonsai being pursued as an art form, 
those are there. Those are things that were built by the original practitioners and have been perpetuated. I think now it's what purpose does this serve and and how is the work creating the ability to communicate in the context for me moving forward because we can't do away with the built environment and because we do have this great communication tool is what is the impact embedding myself in the environment and experiencing these moments of real awareness and then going back to the built environment and seeing the influence of the built environment on the exact same tree that I was working in the native environment, it fit, it made sense. And I take it to the built environment and now all of a sudden I feel like I need to clean it up. I need to change its aesthetic yet again. It's not, it's not beautiful enough. It's not perfect enough. It's not defined enough. It's something is missing, something is wrong, or something does not fit. There's a conflict of the polarities of the urban or the built versus the native and the wild, natural and the wild. That, that conflict is the context. You know, when you think about what I've wrestled with in terms of reconciling my own sensations and feelings from my apprenticeship of the traditional form, not being Japanese, being rejected by the Japanese culture as a, a foreigner, not just during my apprenticeship, but also after my apprenticeship, from the very institution I had worked so hard to become a part of, you know, that did give me a lot of fire and I would say frustration and, and potentially even down, just downright, um, a downright desire to revolt against that. But I think what I recognize about the traditional model is it's a model built out of the built environment. It's a model built out of a country in Japan, that's the size of California in terms of a landmass, and 85% of that landmass is uninhabitable because it is rocky vertical terrain of the Japanese Alps, right? And so all of a sudden, you have half of the population of the United States, 150 million people, stacked into 15% of the landmass of California. And that is where the pursuit of bonsai is being practiced. And there are outliers to that. Kenichi Abe in the Fukushima mountains. And his bonsai approach is different than the traditional approach in Japan. This is, this is case in point, a discussion. It's not a cultural thing now. It's an exposure to the polarities, the built polarity or the native wild polarity. And I don't think either one is better than the other, but they are different. And how are they different? And how does that influence impact your creation as an individual utilizing this great communicator of the land to the individual, right? That is, I think, the challenge of the next decade of Mirai. And I'm so very excited to explore that question and understand to a much greater degree through this medium how we go about potentially teasing out those strands. And for me personally, understanding in my own identity what gives me that sense of place and purpose and intuitive capacity to exist.